From those in the know to those who need to know, this is the Indie Weekly Podcast. There's been a lot of talks about subscription models. And uh, this is something that I kind of equate to in the music world as potentially think fan base. So uh, with that, I would like to uh, give Adam a chance to introduce himself, give a little bit of background, and uh, we'll take it from there. Thanks, Daryl. Uh, it's great to be here. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Adam. I, I'm the CEO of Scriberbase. Uh, we've been knee deep in the subscription economy for a little over five years now. Uh, I come from an entrepreneur background uh, as an operator. I founded and grew a subscription business between 2011 and 2018, sold that, and have been uh, building subscription businesses for brands ever since then. Uh, I'm also an author of a book called The Subscription Boom, which you can find on Amazon or anywhere you get your books. And that's really a deep dive into the last 100 plus years of subscription companies and use cases. Uh, so very excited to be here and happy to have this discussion. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adam. And, you know, when you were talking about that, it actually reminded me of my days uh, working for Live Nation. Uh, they hired me to do a, uh, design fan club cards uh, and they were being sold through Walmart. And it, and it was like artists like David Bowie, JLo, Rolling Stones and such, which le led to building a website at which uh, was VIPNation.com. So uh, this type of model has like, it's, it's not necessarily a new concept, but there's new tools and there's new ways it's actually being utilized and such. So let's first describe, I think what would be good for the audience is define what is a subscription model. So subscription is um, different than what you're typically used to, which is a traditional or transactional one-time transactional model. So rather than, you know, taking out your credit card and purchasing something once, it's giving the merchant access to your credit card to put that on file and bill you in perpetuity for um, the subscription access, whether that's to a product that's being shipped to your house once a month or access to a magazine or a streaming subscription that you set and forget. The idea is that it's not a one-time transaction, it's an ongoing transaction and the onus shifts to you as a customer to cancel if you're not satisfied. Right, and, and, and you know what? It's it's been an interesting thing because apps have been training kind of, uh, I find apps trained subconsciously, like uh, get an upgrade to the app and it'll keep charging you either monthly or yearly. And a lot of people have just, I, I think uh, I'm thinking of like early days of the web, it'd be like people like, I will never put a credit card on anything online. And now it's just commonplace. And, and, and I think apps have really trained people that that's an okay thing. Uh, to be charged monthly or yearly or some other term. Uh, and I, I think it, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing because uh, if we can, can we talk a little bit about price points and how, how that affects the consumer? Because I think that's a very important thing. You know, what 99 cents is different than a dollar, for instance. And, and uh, I think this affects the retention rate. Would, would you agree? Yeah, and, and I think people also underestimate how many things they're actually subscribed to. You know, if I was to ask, ask anybody in this room, you know, how many subscriptions are you involved with? 
um, when you count them up, you, you probably think to yourself, maybe four or five, the actual number is probably double or triple that when you count, you know, your Amazon, your Netflix, your Spotify subscription, in addition to all of the paid apps that you're subscribed to, in addition to, you know, all the utilities or, or your cell phone bill or, or your hosting services, be it Microsoft, Dropbox or otherwise, the number is, is a lot higher than people think. Uh, thanks, Adam, because now I'm thinking about all the ones I'm subscribed <laughs> to. And 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 uh, yeah, like uh, on my end, it's Zapier, uh, MailChimp, Google Drive, Apple, Extended Drive, all that kind of stuff. You're right. And, and that also is another point. Netflix is also another type of service that has made it okay to have that ongoing subscription. Spotify has made it okay. Like, there's millions of people using those services and paying each month. So it's kind of like training the consumer uh, of that, that sort of process. Uh, now, uh, the other part I would like to sort of define too is what draws a person in to say yes to subscribing. Uh, and I, in my end, I would think like providing quality content and such. And so if you can kind of maybe talk a little bit about where is it a point where taking that person that decides, yes, I'm going to buy into the subscription model? Because I think that there's a path that leads up to that point in some cases. Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally on the surface, it's at least from a business perspective, it's really a transformational shift in the way you do business and in thinking about your consumer. So rather than focusing on, on a transaction, subscriptions are much more about the relationship because the game is really won on the back end of that, of that transaction. So, you know, historically merchants have been focused on just driving sales and getting a customer to buy something and then trying to remarket to them to get them to come back to the website or back into the store or whatever. Subscriptions are really focused on what happens beyond that first purchase so that you can engage the customer and keep them on board month after month after month. You know, the subscription winners are the companies that are able to do that and build deep, deep customer loyalty and relationships with their customers and companies that can't simply don't understand that this is a relationship that you're building. It's not about the transaction. Oh, I so agree. The relationship is the key part. Uh, and I think, you know, I was in bands and music and I deal with bands so many times. It's like, here's our music. And like, I, I don't I don't know who you are. Uh, uh, you're just sending me stuff like it. Yesterday, I was just like, here's my new single. Here's this. Here's my next video. And I'm like, I, I don't have time to engage with somebody I don't know. And so there is that relationship building. Um, and, you know, talking in the music side, when I was consulting with artists and building their live show, Another sort of process that we would go through, and a lot of the people in music business would be like, no, 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 we can never do that. I would guest list everybody to get them into the show. And I would have a full house every time. And, and a lot of people are like, oh, we can't not make money because we're losing ticket sales. They would always, the, the percentage would always go up as to how many people would go to the merch table and buy the higher ticket items like t-shirts and t-shirt plus CD. So we were actually making more money by just getting people there. 
And when I look at a subscription model, I feel it's kind of like you'll get an app and it's free. You try it out and then there's going to be a pay model or an online service. You get a free trial and then it goes into a pay model. Can you can you talk a little bit about how artists or anybody really building a subscription model can kind of build that front end, get people there, get the attention in. And a lot of marketing goes around that as well. Yeah. So there's three different types of subscription models. Okay. I'll just highlight um, the two product-based ones, and then we'll talk about the access one in more detail because that's the most important one. That's going to be the model that most people here are going to be interested in. So replenishment is the first one. That's like the Dollar Shave Club or the Amazon subscribe and save. You are buying a consumable that you run out of and you otherwise have to go back to the store to repurchase it uh, once you run out of that product, right? Peanut butter, diapers, laundry detergent. Why not set it and forget it, right? That's replenishment. Curation is the second type of model. That's that wine club that you're subscribed to, that meal kit like HelloFresh or Blue Apron, that snack box, maybe BarkBox or Chewy. That's the model where you're shipped something that has sort of this overarching theme, but the products in the box that you're getting every month might vary. But you like it because you're subscribed to something that you're being surprised with every month. So if you're part of a wine club, um, that curated component of getting a new wine every month is why you're still on board, right? Um, Birchbox or um, some of these other curated models where uh, Birchbox is an example in cosmetics. That's why you're just getting samples of different types of products. So curation is that second piece. The third piece is access. That's the biggest one, right? That's the model you're talking about, Daryl, where you might subscribe to something for free. And in order to level up, you've got to pay uh, for that premium tier. You know, Spotify is a perfect example. You can listen to Spotify for free, but you're going to be served ads. If you don't want to be served ads, you've got to subscribe to the premium tier to get access to Spotify free of commercials. So access to something, whether it's a course, a gym membership, an online dating site, a fan experience, that's that third type of subscription model that's the most popular. And there's so many variations of the model and so many ways to think about what type of access model might work for you as a musician, as an artist, um, as a business. Well, th thank you for defining those because that really puts things in perspective a lot. And, um, you know, that relationship building up front, though, I think is so key. And it, it's funny, some of the, uh, what was the, was it mustache club that you said? Oh, the dollar shave club, dollar shave club. Mm -hmm. Did, I, I'm curious to know. And, and uh, so, you know, asking questions, if people could put in the chat and Hoover, have you heard of the dollar shave club? Because there's been some other talks about marketing and branding. And it's interesting how a dollar shave club never heard of it. And then all of a sudden come from out of nowhere and, so many people have heard of it. Could you talk about a little bit about, you know, building that awareness to get like that marketing angle uh, for a new product, new brand to, to be able to build that subscription model? I, I believe marketing is a, a big upfront. Yeah. Well, if you think about marketing, um, it's really about the, the top of the funnel and driving 
a customer to ultimately engage with you or, or purchase something, right? That's the ultimate goal. And then obviously, if it's a subscription, to stay with you beyond that first purchase. So the first step is building awareness. The second step would be building interest, then consideration. And that's when they ultimately, hopefully, purchase something. So you're talking about the first piece, right? How do you build awareness? What are the channels that you leverage? In the case of Dollar Shave Club, they went to YouTube and they did that on purpose because they said, you know, we're a non-traditional brand. We're disruptive. We're not a, a typical men's shaving brand. So we're not going to go to radio TV print. We're not going to pay all this money up front to do these big budget commercials or anything like that. We're going to create this YouTube video and it's going to be less than 5,000 bucks to produce it. And we're going to see what happens. And we're going to really rely on YouTube as that direct channel to spread our message. And I think that's a great use case because, first of all, it goes to show that you don't need to spend all this money to bring a brand to market. Two, uh, the world has changed with the advent of the internet and these direct-to-consumer channels like YouTube. Um, you can access the consumer directly and hop over the middleman, so to speak. And three, it allows you to create something that goes hyper viral and ultimately drives a ton of traffic and hopefully a ton of, of purchases to your brand. So I think there's a lot of lessons that could be drawn from Dollar Shave. Um, it doesn't just have to be, you know, a consumer products lesson or a consumer CPG type of, of use case. It's really about learning from that particular experience and bringing that experience to your brand so you can bring your brand to market in a much more intelligent way. Yeah, and it would, I, I gotta say, they did a great job on, on right out of the gate, building that awareness of the brand. But there's others that I remember, I can't remember the, quite the names, but there was like men's underwear, they made that fun. Uh, there's like the beard products, that was fun. Uh, but you saw them. And, and another part is the frequency. I would see it almost every single time I went on YouTube. It was just all the time. So, so you know, it's the kind of thing is, I would say, have a really well thought out plan before starting. So to get to that phase of here we are marketing it, you have to really think the process. And, and so can we talk a little bit about that? I know we're kind of pulling earlier in the stage of it, to get to that launch point, you almost really need to have it drawn out. Here's how long the marketing is going to be. Here's when we want to engage. And here's where we expect people to pay. Because I think sometimes people go into something like this and go, okay, we're going to put it up and we're going to see immediate results. And I think the expectations need to be uh, you, you know, handled a little bit better. Could you talk look, a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, and, and Dollar Shave, I don't think had that all figured out on day one either. Um, just within 24 hours of releasing that YouTube commercial back in 2012, they crashed the site. You know, they signed up 12,000 new subscribers within 24 hours. They didn't have enough inventory on hand. Frankly, Michael Dubin, the founder, it really didn't have a plan. His plan was to launch that video. And in fact, he was funded by the first venture capital firm, Science in LA for $100,000. And 
just on the back of basically no business plan, but but seeing that YouTube commercial and thinking, hey, this guy's going to have something because this YouTube commercial is really great. It's really funny. We'll figure everything else out after the fact. But I think you bring up an important point, which is what do you do if you do create something that goes viral? If you do create something that drives a lot of traffic, how do you start thinking about the customer experience once you have people coming on board? And as I mentioned, you've got the top of funnel process, right? How do you think about awareness, interest, consideration, purchase? There's also the post-transaction process, which is how do you think about your business, your brand, your experience once you have the customer in the door? And the first 30 to 69 to 90 days, you know, month one through three, if you will, is the most important because that's where your consumer is going to have buyer remorse if they do develop buyer remorse. It's like a first date, right? You are sort of feeling out the customer and they're feeling out your brand to see if you're a fit. And if they don't think you're a fit or they don't like what you're selling, they're going to churn or they're going to cancel most likely within the first 30, 60, 90 days. If you can nail that, you have got a customer potentially that's very, very sticky on the back end. And ultimately that drives loyalty. It drives engagement. It drives word of mouth and it drives high lifetime value or high recurring revenue in the back end. So I think if you want to break it down into components and think about developing a sound plan, it's really what do we do to create that awareness, interest, consideration, and purchase? And then what do we do the first 30, 60, 90 days of our subscription? What does that look like? How do we talk to the customer? What do we send if we do send them something? How do we communicate to them by email? How do we communicate them on chat? What are we giving them? These are all important components to think about. That is so bang on. I got to say, I think a lot of times people think about the pre, how do we get them there? Great. We got their purchase. And then don't think about the follow-up at all. I've seen that happen so many times, especially, and again, I'm going to try to relate this in band talk, like live show. When I worked with artists, how do we make money selling merch? How do we get people to the merch table? How do we get people engaged? So uh, our rule was the second the band was finished playing, the singer goes straight to the merch table. He doesn't have gear to tear down or anything. He's all sweaty and everything. It's all good because people want to have access. They, they want to engage. And, and the second another band member is done, they get to, like, everybody has to be at the merch table. I've seen so many times an artist is done playing and they're nowhere around to talk to fans. They're, they're, they're not even engaging or the drummers outside having a smoke, the bass players at the bar, someone else is at the back of the room, like they're scattered and, and they don't get everybody together. And what we found worked was the entire band standing on the other side of the merch table. If somebody wanted to talk to one of the band members, they all were at the same place. And then all of a sudden a group of people is around the merch table, taking photos with the band, putting that on social. And in between is the product. So if they want to support the band all the time, here it is right in front of you. And I think that that's a real in-person kind of experience, but having those sort of experiences and, and allowing artists to, or sorry, fans and consumers to be excited, but 
also building confidence that they bought into something that's going to lead to something else that's that, like they want to see continual uh, consistency, I think is the word I'm looking for. If anything, I find in building confidence, it's you're consistent because it's like, oh, I haven't heard from them in five weeks. What's going on? I haven't heard. Oh, there's a thing. And they just announced it two days before it's happening. And, and like, it doesn't look planned. So, um, yeah, I, I really think the back end after you've got them, how do you con- how do you get that confidence and such? Could you, could you talk about some of the strategies uh, about that? Uh, because online is different than in person, you know, uh, what are some of the strategies? Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, your fans want a personal as personal relationship with the band or the artist as humanly possible. And I don't think that's a new concept. You know, there's a book called the business of the grateful dead or something to that effect. Um, and I think what the Grateful Dead really nailed is understanding how to become hyper personalized with their fan base. And it really wasn't about selling a ton of records. It wasn't about moving uh, product or merch necessarily. It was really about this deeply personal experience with their fans in the flesh at those live shows. And I think that that's an important lesson for a lot of artists and musicians uh, to think about because, you know, you've seen a lot of jam bands, you know, like Fish, for example, which people like to draw parallels between Fish and the Dead. But, you know, there's a reason why I think the Fish model and the Grateful Dead model is so attractive and why those bands have become so successful. They've really nailed the personal experience between their fans and them. And the middlemen, you know, the record labels, the agents um, in, in today's age, you know, the streaming platforms are, are really less relevant for these types of bands because they don't care. They have a direct relationship with their fans and vice versa. Um, you know, Fish has their, their live app, which has a subscription component attached to it. Years ago, when they started out, they had the Fish newsletter that was going direct to their email list, talking about what the band was doing on the road. Um, I think these pieces are super important. And even though we're starting to talk about this as kind of like a modern approach to uh, you know, driving revenue and driving loyalty and engagement with fans now, this type of approach isn't new. It's been around. So I think the question is, you know, how do you build a model that can create that direct relationship with your fans? Is it behind the scenes access to stuff? Is it a newsletter? Is it a masterclass or a course? Is it a behind the scenes look at your rehearsals or access to whatever you're recording in the studio? Is it these short form videos? Um, It could be components of all of these things, but I think the important part is like, how do you create a strategy that drives a really, really close knit direct relationship with your fans? That's, that's so true. And, you know, it's interesting when you were talking uh, in, I grew up in Edmonton and uh, there was a club called the rebar and it was Interesting how they launched and became a successful club right away. It was if you're there within the first month, you would get a free membership. And the way they would do it is you had to sign all this stuff. Oh, but 
you're going to have to come back in a week because your card will be ready in a week. So now they get you in the venue twice. And what are you going to do? Buy some drinks and hang out and talk about it. Bring some friends maybe. And that would get you front of the line access. It would get you uh, a phone call or an email. This is, again, I'm old. Back in the day, phone was a thing. Uh, They would tell you, hey, we have a special event coming the third Thursday of next month. Do you want to be on the guest list? So they're making sure that event is successful by bringing people, but it's to the member, it's like a perk. Oh, and, and so it's not expected. So with that membership, yes, you get front of line access all the time, but here's a perk. And I think sometimes a little bit of element of surprise helps. It's like, oh, I got more than I bargained for. Uh, and I got, I, I've got more than what I was anticipating. And then the funny part was, oh, that membership expires January 1st. You need to come back to renew the membership. So it was a way for them to also know, and this is, again, back before everything, to know how big their audience is based on how many people came back. And often, it was now $20 if you want to renew. So so a couple points to unpack there. One, perks. So higher than what's expected. And then two, that that sort of resubscribing is, is uh, something that gives you the data on knowing what your fan base is like. But also, if it was free the first year, you're going to probably get more signups than if it was $20 first off. But then having that renewal fee, you're starting the year, if just you know, to do an easy number, if you had a thousand people, $20, you're starting the year with $20,000 cash flow. So uh, lots to unpack there, but uh, let's talk about the perks, but then maybe that n- renewal uh, concept with the cash flow aspect. Okay. Um, so perks is w- when you're talking about perks, you're really talking about exclusivity, right? Creating something that feels exclusive, feels scarce. And you're just tugging on the emotional cords of, of how each of us operate as human beings. You know, everybody wants to feel special. Everybody wants to feel like they've got exclusive access to something. You know, loyalty programs are, I think, an interesting example because we're moving away from points programs because points programs are ubiquitous, right? Points cards are meaningless. Nobody understands the benefits. Nobody understands the redemption thresholds. Nobody understands sort of how many points equate to how many dollars you get a free card. Everybody has a free card. You know, if I'm going to use Shoppers Drug Mart, I'm in Canada as, a, as an example. Everybody under the sun is an optimal member, optimum member. Uh, it's not special. It's boring. And you see the behavior um, with consumers reflects that. It has very low usage. People don't understand how to redeem. Uh, same with Air Miles, things like that. These programs are free. They're, they're company friendly. They're not customer friendly. Paid loyalty is where things are going. Um, companies are rethinking loyalty more broadly and saying, hey, these points programs don't work for the customer. How do we really create something that's a win-win? And they're trying to follow Amazon Prime that's really perfected this model perfectly and said, hey, um, we're going to create a loyalty program that you're going to pay for. It's $99 a year or $120 a year, depending on where you live. But we're going to throw in so many perks 
that you're not even going to think about that. You're not even going to think about the subscription fee. Frankly, you're going to be happy to pay for it because you have so many perks that are exclusive uh, to you as a Prime member that you're happy to pay and take advantage. So this sort of fee for VIP loyalty is going to replace points programs. And I, I think there's nothing wrong with, with charging a fee to give your member your fan access to something that is beneficial to them and you see with with consumers they're happy to pay for it and they're that much more invested because they've got skin in the game right they've paid for this this exclusivity piece um on the you talked about um the, the second part which is sort of the resubscribing um how do you think about you know your model when do you charge you know what's free what's not um, the free trials, I, I think, are really overrated. Okay, a lot of companies like the free trial model because it drives a ton of volume out of the gate, right? As you can imagine, people like to get something for free if they're not familiar with it, right? If they don't really understand what they're getting or they're uncertain. So it's sort of that something for nothing. Hey, I'm going to sign up for free. If I don't like it, I can always cancel within the first month and I'm not going to get dinged on my credit card. So what you see um, on the back end of that data is a lot of churn, a lot of cancellations happening right before that first billing cycle. So as a business, you don't really know um, what the quality of that traffic is, what the quality of those consumers are gonna be because you're not sure if they're gonna be that sticky because a bunch of that cohort are just customers and wanna get something for nothing. So I think, um, you know, our preference is, and at least what we see with companies, is that you're open and upfront about your billing model. Um, you remove that free trial component, you charge the customer, you make it transparent, and you say, hey, you know, we've created something that's very valuable here. Um, there is a charge, but, you know, here's why. You're getting all of these benefits, these perks, as you brought up, Daryl, that are going to be so valuable to you. And um, that's why you're paying for it. And, and you really won't think twice about it. Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. Like, um, I'm thinking about the internet process. Like, I started doing internet web stuff late 90s, so early days. And there was, I feel, there was this crash where walled gardens, we called it. Uh, you couldn't see a thing unless you paid. And, and that was early days of internet. So there wasn't that confidence in knowing, oh, okay, this, hey, I could trust this website. Give my credit card on the internet was still an iffy thing. Uh, people weren't just confident about that. Uh, so I think a, another big part of it is ease of use, building that experience to be as easy and seamless as possible, because I think a lot of times the mechanisms are the barrier, like, oh, how do I, why can't this work? Or I got to fill this in. I, I think trying to make the experience as seamless as possible and easy as possible. Would you agree? Speed and convenience. That, that's what customers want um, with respect to these subscription programs. So I 100% agree. Yeah, it's, it's I, like I know for me, uh, sometimes I'll see an ad download this app off of Instagram and I do. And right off the bat, there's sign up for this, 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 and I still don't quite know what the app is. And so they haven't got that loyalty yet. Uh, now with that sort of subscription model, again, uh, it's the kind of thing that could create really good cash flow for 
the artist and and who the business. Um, how much of that do you reinvest into it on normal? Like, because I often feel if you want to keep scaling upward, you got to reinvest. Uh, maybe what are some of the strategies around that? Mm. So, um, let me take one step back and say there, there's a big reason why subscriptions are appealing to a business or a brand uh, or an artist. You know, it's really tough to, to, to make a business work if you're selling something once and then trying to attract someone back. With subscriptions, like I mentioned early on, the onus shifts from the business having to attract the customer back to the customer now having to cancel if they're not satisfied. That's a huge paradigm shift in, uh, in a business model. So what that does for a business is, is build really predictable recurring revenue, right? So you've driven that first transaction. Now what you're gonna do is you're gonna watch the behavior of that customer cohort over time, right? How many billing cycles, how many months are they gonna stay on board? And that's the first metric you care about. We call that customer lifetime value, okay? The other piece that you really care about is cost of customer acquisition, right? How much does it cost you to attract that customer in to begin with? And that ratio, that metric of lifetime value to cost of acquisition is one of the most important metrics, the most important metric probably to measure and manage as a subscription business. So how do you think about marketing and acquisition? Well, to your point, it really depends on cash flow and how aggressive that you can get. But the rule of thumb is as a business, you wanna have an LTV to CAC ratio of at least three to one. So if your lifetime value of a subscriber is say $90, you don't want that cost of acquisition to exceed $30 because you've got all of these other costs of operating your business, your brand, your band, right? Um, that's on that PL, all of these other expenses that you need to account for. So you want to make sure that your lifetime value is at least three times, ideally four, five, six times higher than what you're acquiring a customer for. And when I say acquiring a customer, I mean spending money on marketing channels, be it Google, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, YouTube, uh, to attract someone in. How many dollars do you have to spend? to bring that customer on board such that they take out their credit card and subscribe. Yeah, I, that is so important. I think a lot of people don't realize that cost of acquiring a, a customer into the factor. Now, want to kind of talk a little bit about tiers uh, because that's another sort of model instead of like, here's a one price point. And again, Live Nation was famous for the meet and greets, the VIP package, the box seats, the lawn seats, the, they, they literally want to try to make sure that they're getting everybody they can because all the price point options are there all the way from the cheap seats, as we called them, the lawn seats being 15 to $20 to that box seat corporate being a thousand dollars with the meet and greet, getting a guitar signed with a photo with the band possibly being $5,000, which might include a leather tour jacket and things like that. Um, can you talk about the importance of, of a tiered model? And is it something that you introduce first, or maybe you've had a one price model for a year and then you've built confidence and do you introduce that tier model a little later? 
So uh, just to kind of frame, maybe describe the tier model a bit, but then also when to introduce. Sure. Um, let's think about this in a few different ways. So when we think about tiers, um, we want to go back to sort of the good, better, best model. And you see this across various industries, whether it's access to software or access to, you know, different product plans. Um, you know, if you're a subscriber to BarkBox, let's say you've got a pet, you know, that's a perfect example of a company employing the, the good, better, best model. Good, better, best means simply that you have three different tiers. The most obvious is a free tier, then maybe a better tier with a few other benefits uh, that are exclusive for that first tier up. And then that second tier up is typically a premium model where you have uh, the, the whole kitchen sink, if you will. So um, more than three tiers is too many tiers, okay? And in our experience, even good, better, best, uh, we see a little bit of consumer fatigue or decision fatigue, right? Customers don't really know what they want. They don't really know what package they want to subscribe to. So we actually like the better best model. Um, and that could be a free plus a paid premium, or maybe you don't go with the freemium model based on what I was saying before about the downsides of free trial, right? You have a less expensive and a more expensive. And then what are the components, the features, the product giveaways, whatever, that are going into those two pricing plans. So that's that's the tiered way to, to think about this. The other thing that I would highlight is um, what if you didn't want to tier and you wanted to create some sort of paid subscription model? How do you start thinking about it? What do you do in terms of, of benefits? How many benefits are necessary, whatever? And we see this all, all the time with clients you know, they're very sort of mixed up in terms of how they're thinking about it. How many, what, you know, what do we give the customer? How many features, how many benefits, what, what perks do we, do we give them? Um, the Amazon prime formula is typically the blueprint that we suggest that companies follow. And the Amazon prime formula is pretty simple. Okay. You have an anchor benefit, plus you have two to three complementary benefits. Okay. In the case of Amazon Prime, the anchor benefit, the main benefit, if you will, is the free shipping or the two-day shipping. That's what people are paying for, you know. And then you've got two complementary benefits that are pretty obvious, you know, access to Prime Video and maybe a couple of other benefits. And I'll tell you, I bet you, Daryl, uh, you and everybody else in this room, after that, your brain just sort of shuts off. Like if you're a pr Prime subscriber, and I asked you. What do you get with Amazon Prime? You probably say, well, I get the free shipping or the two-day shipping. I get Prime Video and Prime Music. And then, I don't know, a bunch of other shit. I don't, I, I don't even know what I get. But I don't think about it because I'm getting enough value out of the anchor benefit plus the two complementary benefits, be it Amazon, uh, Prime Video and Prime Music. So no more than three benefits um, is, is, are, are necessary. It doesn't mean you, you don't have like you can always add more, but in our experience and what we're seeing across the data is that customers, you know, don't their brain sort of shuts off beyond three benefits. They don't really think about what they're getting beyond that first anchor benefit and the next two sort of complementary benefits. So that's a great way to think about building uh, building your your subscription model. I was sort of laughing when you were saying that because Amazon is literally sending me emails 
you're not using Amazon Music. You're missing out because uh, I do <laughs> right. have that subscription, but I use Spotify and Apple and others for for music. And sure enough, here they are emailing me saying you're you're not even using this. <laughs> so I've got two. I've I've made it to two. I do the video and free shipping. That's all I know uh, for it. So so prime example. Now. Uh, if people have been in on some of the talks we've been doing over the last year, I've used a phrase, people add value. And so here you get the subscription base, you've got your audience. Now there's other ways to monetize this audience. And I would look at it as this is a prime opportunity to build partnerships. I, I believe uh, Dollar Shave Club or another one is just partnered with Amazon, for instance. So distribution is now going through Amazon. Uh, but you could do partnerships and sponsorships. And, and really, you get that data. And I think that's what companies and brands are looking to associate with. And plus a proven model of an audience. Uh, can you talk about how you can sort of take that data, your audience, and start monetizing in these other ways and, and more if you have other options? Um, well, well, data is a really important piece, obviously. And I think a big reason why companies are gravitating towards subscription is because they're getting access to customer data at a much faster pace than they would otherwise if they had companies or excuse me, customers just buying something once. You know, if you look at retail brick and mortar and you think about how customers are, are maybe walking into stores and, and buying a shirt or a pair of pants, um, it's really difficult, for example, for The Gap to get to know me or you, Daryl, if you walk in there and buy something once. Um, they might have a transaction on file. They know you bought a black sweater uh, in size medium. But beyond that, they have no idea what you like, what your preferences are. With subscription, you're, have, you're getting access to that recurring data, that recurring touch point with the customer every month. So if it's the same product, fine. Um, it's not as meaningful to you as a business. If you're selling multiple products or you've got curated boxes or you're sending stuff to Daryl on a regular basis and you're mixing it up, you've got much more powerful data uh, to work with. You know, if you look at Spotify or Netflix, there's a reason why those suggestion algorithms are so powerful because they're based on consumer behavior. They know that if you've watched you know, House of Cards or, or Orange is the New Black or Ozark, that you're going to like whatever, this show or that show, Breaking Bad or otherwise. Um, so, so building that predictive data is much more powerful with a subscription business than it is with any other business model because you're getting access to that data at a much faster pace than you would otherwise. That's, yeah, it's, it's really quite amazing. And I'll just be example of us is now that we've been doing these conferences online uh we get a report and like just a one of the statistics i you know we've had over seven thousand two hundred and fifty messages through the platform at our last conference like we know how many people are communicating with each other and and things like that now talking about data you made me start thinking then you, there's ways to elevate fans, for for instance, where it's like, oh, that one's really engaged. That's like super fan. Um, maybe talk about how can you leverage the people that are engaged the most because they actually become your sales agents almost. They're, they're the marketers. Yeah. They, they can go out and bring more people to your subscription. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. 
I think historically companies have been very one track minded in terms of how they've been thinking about this. And they're, they're thinking about this relationship between, you know, company and consumer, right? We've got a subscription business. Fine. We have a relationship now with that subscriber. Um, we're, we're building them on an ongoing basis. Great. We'll just model that out. Um, and we'll, we'll see what else, um, what other sort of optimization we can do there. I think the next chapter of subscription is going in the direction that you're describing, which is, you know, how do you build a community off of your subscription base? Right. And the question is to how the question of how do you build community and how powerful of a community can it be is really rooted in this one question, which is, can your fans, or do your friend, would your fans appreciate getting access to one another, right? Can your fans get value from one another? If the answer is yes, then you have the potential to create a really, really powerful community um, that becomes very engaging and very sticky and ultimately very loyal. Um, if the answer is sort of vague or, or not necessarily, the path to community um, is a lot less clear. So I'll highlight a couple of examples. So in the case of Peloton, you know, Peloton is really more than a fitness company, more than a connected fitness company. This is a community, right? There's a reason why Peloton members churn at less than a percent every month, which is in the consumer space, better than any consumer brand out there, even better than Netflix, right? Netflix has two and a half percent monthly churn. Peloton is 0.82%, less than 1%. It's unbelievable. And the reason that Peloton uh, subscribers are so sticky really doesn't have anything to do with the primary product, the bike. Um, it has more to do with what happens during the subscription experience, which is the access to great classes, but, but more importantly, access to other individuals like you who have subscribed, who are now competing with one another on the leaderboard. You can see your friend's data. They can see yours. You can send an invitation. Hey, take the spin class with me at 8 a.m., and all of a sudden, Peloton is able to build this hyper-powerful, sticky community because you find that valuable talking to your friends, to your family members, and sharing in that experience with others. Um, and so that is really the holy grail of, of where I think great subscription businesses are going to be built. It's going to be built on the back end of a really sticky community where fans find it valuable to get access to, to one another. You know, it's the same way with bands. There's a reason why Grateful Dead fans are called deadheads. Um, they love being in a room together. They love being at a live show together. They get value in sharing in the dead experience with each other. Um, same with Tesla, you know, Tesla's not a subscription business, but Tesla car owners are very much engaged and they love sharing stories, you know, on Reddit, on these other fan forums about what they love about Tesla, what they love about Elon Musk. And that's something that, you know, uh, Ford is not going to be able to do. That's something that Walmart's not going to be able to do. You know, there's no value in a Walmart community. I don't care if you shop at Walmart and I shop at Walmart. There's no value in sharing those stories. But if you like the dead and I like the dead, or you're a Peloton member and I'm a Peloton member, there's really something there. Oh, you, you nailed it. Uh, and I was sort of laughing because I brought this up on my phone. Last night, I found these old posters of a band called The Smalls, and I posted it to the Smalls group. They have not been together for 
at least 14, 16 years. They did one reunion tour, which sold out and they weren't selling out when they were a band together. The community's actually grown since the band has, has uh, broken apart. But I posted that these posters last night, uh, 11 hours ago, and there's already comments, there's already likes and, and share. Oh, I've got that poster. I've got the same thing. Oh, do you have this one? And people are posting different ones and such. So, so you're very right. It's, I think that it's kind of human nature to find others that are like us and are like-minded. And I think this is one of the biggest powerful elements of talking about subscription models and communities is that you're really building something that could be also meaningful to a lot of people. And I think having that emotional element as opposed to just product and consumer based is really important. A hundred percent, you know, in the subscription space it, in music, there's a great company called vinyl me, please. I'm not sure if, sure if you're familiar with it. Um, it's a subscription business. You get access to, to vinyl, uh, every month, different albums, uh, shipped directly to you. And what's so powerful about, about that business is the community of other vinyl me, please members who share stories about how much they love vinyl. Um, I think, you know, you can't overestimate how important this community piece really is going forward. And I think, you know, whether you're an artist, whether you're an individual creator, uh, a band, a brand, uh, a large cap company, if you're not thinking about building a community, it's a huge missed opportunity. Uh, yeah, especially like, like I've been really trying to push people add value and, and not just consumer based, but just having a group of people uh, that believes in what you're doing has that chance to exponentially grow. And that leads to success. So you have 10 people that turns into 20, which turns into 40, which turns into 80 and so on and so on. And kind of going back to one of your previous comments on the power of that, talking about that live music model, when I'm building that guest list, everybody gets a plus one. Bring somebody we don't know and we don't have access to. Bring someone else into the fold. So uh, that, that was, we've, that's something that I found very powerful is give people the power to bring other people in that we wouldn't even know. And hopefully we sell what we're doing to them and they bring in somebody else they know. So there's, there's that thing that I, I kind of say, start sooner rather than later, because that's, you're missing so much opportunity because you're losing that exponential growth every day. I agree with you. And, you know, people call it word of mouth. We call it the water cooler effect. Um, you know, talking about what you love, whether it's a band or otherwise at the water cooler um, is a really powerful thing. And brands that are able to create that, that water cooler effect end up profiting from it because we talked about the cost of acquisition, right? Imagine there was no word of mouth or no water cooler effect that $30 customer acquisition cost would never go down because for every new individual that you, you, you bring in, there would be that $30 expense attached to it. What brands do is, you know, if they're focused on word of mouth, if they're focused on creating that water cooler effect where they do have their customers talking about that experience or talking about their brand, they see a direct benefit because now you've got organic signups, you've got organic sales of merch or otherwise, because those folks heard about you through their friend or their family member. And that costs you as a business, zero. 
because you might have paid $30 for Daryl, but guess what? Daryl told Greg, told Ivan, told Barry, and now that band uh, or, or that brand has four new customers, but they've only paid for one, which ultimately uh, is a great way to think about driving down uh, uh, costs and increasing profit margins. Yeah, it's huge. And I know for our experience on our weekly talks, like especially there was one, somebody tuned in from Tunisia, somebody tuned in from uh, Israel, uh, another few people from Africa, Australia, the word of mouth is great. And one of the things that I find really sort of actually motivating on my end then is how did they hear about it? You don't even know sometimes. And, and it just sort of proves that model does exist where that word of mouth travels and you can't predict necessarily what success will come out of that. I, Madagascar, somebody tuned in from Madagascar and I'm like, how did somebody in Madagascar hear about what we're doing online Tuesdays? You just don't know. So, so that there's that unpredictability factor that can play a role. And uh, I think that's actually the kind of the most interesting part because now you can sort of play with that because that brings in new elements and it's like, okay, can we get 10 people from Madagascar? Can we empower that person to get 10 people from Madagascar and grow from there? Uh, now, with that, I want to give a bit of time. Uh, can you tell us about Scriberbase and, and, and tell us about what you guys do? Sure. So Scriberbase, uh, we, we're a subscription business builder, ultimately. Uh, we work with brands of all sizes from startup to scale up to bring their subscription model or business to market. Uh, we're not only focused on strategy, we do implementation planning and, and business building. Um, so we roll up our sleeves uh, beyond just the strategic work. So um, that's what we do. There's more info at scriberbase.com. That's like subscriber, but without the sub. Um, or I encourage folks to check out the book. Again, it's the subscription boom and they could find it anywhere. That's awesome. And, and uh, I got to say, Adam, this has been really great talking to you because it fits so well with the music community and, and you know, in building something, you know, everybody talks about how hard it is to be a musician. I feel this is how to get easier to be a musician uh, because once you build that base, it grows organically and you build that relationship where you're getting that positive feedback. And uh, one other thing I wanted to sort of add uh, to the conversation is you could poll your audience. And so your next decision could be based on your feedback from your audience. And then I've known like Pearl Jam, I think it was, was which songs should we play at our concert mm -hmm. uh, and, and have voting processes and things like that. Can you talk just a little bit about that as we're about to close? Sure. I mean, again, it goes back to building direct relationships, more personal relationships with your, uh, your listeners, right? How do you do that? How do you give them closer access to you? to what you're up to in life. I mean, musicians are, uh, they're, they're mysterious beings, right? Um, people view them as role models. So, so having access, you know, much like having access to an athlete who's playing a professional sport, if you can get a behind the scenes look at how musicians are going about their, their artistry, I think that's hugely powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And I saw one question somebody was asking about, like, what are some of the offerings that could happen for a premium and, and build that up? You know, uh, it, it's endless. Uh, people 
like set lists. Like I've seen people go to a concert and they want the set list. They want a guitar pick. They want drumsticks. Uh, they want photos with the band. They want like, it's endless. And I think this is where uh, be creative, but also be creative within who you are. I think uh, a big part of the trust is don't try to do smoke and mirrors on anybody. Like, uh, you know, I think you can kind of, propel people away from you if you're not being true to, to who you are as an artist. And, and that's what your fans are really coming there for. Uh, would yeah. you agree with that? hundred percent. Yeah. It's, it's be who you are, be true to your fans. And, and the, what I really think about this digital age is it'll attract more of the right people to you. You might get a venue full of a hundred people, but there might only be 20 that really resonate with what you're doing this online space, what I find is it's a higher level of the people who are attending really want to be here. They really want to do this. So you kind of actually are getting rid of the people that don't add as much value because they're not as interested or engaged. Uh, do you see that happening as well? Yes, a hundred percent. It's relationship commerce at the end of the day. Um, transactional commerce is dead. I've said it uh, from the beginning. It's the thesis in my book. Um, we're moving into a much different era of commerce where relationships trump transactions. So how do you build it? And uh, subscriptions are a great way to do that. You've been listening to the Indie Weekly Podcast. Be sure to visit IndieWeek.com for all the information on the conferences for 2022. Screen by Screen, Music and Tech in February. Indie 101, Music and Business Education in May. Music Pro Summit, high-level music industry insight from professionals in September, and Indie Week brings it all together in November. Thanks for listening.